This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this afternoon's session of Ned Group Investments Insights. I am Mohini Naidu, Investment Analyst at Ned Group Investments on the Best of Breed team based in Cape Town. And today it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Romick of FPA based in Los Angeles, co-portfolio manager of the Ned Group Investments Global Flexible Fund. The Ned Group Investments Global Flexible Fund is a fully flexible, globally diversified portfolio in which the manager aims to provide investors with equity-like returns over the long term, but with less risk than the stock market. The fund is modeled on FPA's contrarian value strategy which they have been managing for more than two decades since 1993. FPA will use the full flexibility of the mandate to invest across the capital structure, asset classes, industries and geographies from equity to cash and everything in between. FPA first and foremost value investors. Now, you may well have observed that some of the names in the portfolio don't fit the conventional definition of value stocks. When FBA call themselves value investors, what they're really saying is that they prefer to invest with a margin of safety. So their purchases aren't limited to whether the market defines a particular stock as value or growth, whether by a metric such as PE or price to book or dividend yield, etc. Rather, by their assessment of a company's value and whether the price they are paying is at a substantial discount to that value. FPA have a strong capital preservation mindset and believe in protecting capital first and achieving equity-like returns second. This philosophy and their willingness to hold substantial cash positions when they don't believe investors are adequately compensated for market risk means that they will lag in some market rallies. However, it is this ability to preserve investors' gains well in difficult environments that has resulted in the fund's long-term success. It is a strategy that has held investors in good stead over multiple decades, and we believe will continue to reward patient investors in pursuit of long-term outperformance. At this point, I'm going to hand over to Stephen Romick. As we go through the presentation, please feel free to submit any questions you may have in the Q&A chat portal on the right-hand side of your screen. I will then pose as many of these as possible to Steve during the Q&A session after his presentation. So just a reminder, I suppose in the meantime, um, this strategy, FPA have been the contrarian value strategy, FPA have been managing for more than two decades and the Ned Group Global Flexible Fund is based on the FPA's contrarian value strategy. Now the two funds mirror each other in terms of philosophy and process, but there are some differences due to the regulatory the different regulatory environments in which they operate. So for example, the global, the Ned Group Global Flexible Fund may not have individual short positions, no mortgages, no illiquid securities compared to the to FPA's flagship fund. But apart from that, the funds mirror each other completely in terms of philosophy and process. And we expect the overlap over time to be in excess of, of 95%. But over shorter periods, they may be there may be some small, smaller differential between. Steve, welcome and over to you. Right. Thank you very much, Mindy. I appreciate the kind introduction. Uh, as everybody knows, markets have rebounded 
But as everyone also knows, the global economy is not, and we won't be getting back to pre-COVID levels anytime soon. The big drivers in the market clearly have been companies that uh, where there's been a lot of excitement about and people and companies that can the investors believe can absorb the the damage you know to the economy and, and valuations as it will come to later in the presentation have not don't really reflect you know reality in our view. The world certainly seems a lot worse than what the stock market you know currently reflects. Uh, we, we we did in the first quarter when there was tremendous volatility and the market was was going down you know at a fairly rapid clip as fast in the US as it's ever done in history. Uh, we took advantage to reposition the portfolio. We not only bought into weakness, including importantly opportunistic purchases of high yield debt, but we also high graded the quality of the portfolio as a whole. Uh, given that we believe that we there will be more opportunity, uh, we continue to retain significant cash. We were well positioned for what is to come, particularly if you take that longer term time horizon with which we've always invested. We, re we remain robust to a downturn with a high quality portfolio in cash, and yet robust to recovery now that we're more invested in both high quality names as well as beaten down value names. I think everybody on the call is familiar with what the fund is, so I'm going to speak to the next few slides, and, and Rob is, is controlling the, the clicker here, but speaking to both the, the objective and philosophy you know, together, uh, we, we retain the same flexible approach and absolute return focus that we've always engaged in. Uh, patience has always been a key factor in what we do as investors, particularly in waiting for opportunities when we have cash, as well as waiting for companies to, to manifest themselves well in the market if their underlying business is doing well, which interestingly in many of the cases, you know, it is the case, and yet the stock prices don't reflect that. I'm going to go jump to the portfolio review, Rob, and, and go right to page six, if you don't mind. The asset class composition, as you can see in this page, we're a little bit more exposed than we were a year ago. And that's a function of a few reasons. The stock market's up. The Fed's taken, the U.S. Fed and other central banks have taken tail risk off the table. And we believe that rates will likely be lower for longer. So let me just address each of those three points to explain why we have what we have. The, the the stock market being up has certainly taken our portfolio along with it for the capital we invested in Q1, and that's part of the uh, exposure increase. The Fed having taken tail risk off the table and other central banks by stepping up and buying securities has created a you know tremendous support level you know for the market. It doesn't mean the market can't go down, but they're going to throw, continue, central banks will continue, we believe, to throw money at, into economies through the repurchase of debt in some countries, re, you know, repurchase of, purchasing of equities in other countries, uh, as well as purchases of treasuries and other sovereign, their own sovereign debt in, in other countries as well. And we've seen that happen around the world in Japan buying stocks, in Europe, you know, in the ECB buying corporate bonds, and in the in the U.S. now buying corporate bonds, uh, not buying equities, but uh, certainly buying treasuries hand over fist. So we think that the institutional imperative at the government level is to keep rates lower for longer. And what that means is that it, we don't know how this plays out and what will happen, will happen to rates in the future or inflation. The Fed and central banks are continuing to do their best to drive economies forward or keep them from slipping into the abyss. 
certainly with both monetary and fiscal policy and with and tremendous manipulation that's occurring in the, in the midst. And what that means is nobody really knows what the outcome will be, but there is real risk of tremendous inflationary pressures, uh, at least in risk assets. I don't mean necessarily global inflation in goods and services, but what you pay for an asset could be worth more in, in the future than it is today for no other reason that rates are so low. So you think of rates as, you know, a, in what it means to present value a stream of cash flows, that cash flow turns into an equity value, and that equity value is worth more the lower the discount rate. Now, that's what we believe is happening, you know, in the, in the world today, and it explains why our exposures are what they are. That also means that we do expect there will be some additional volatility because of that. The alternative in investing in, in bonds, particularly conservative, higher-grade bonds, is not something that makes sense to us. hasn't for some time, and we're actually – and the only reason where the U.S. – why the high yield, U.S. high-yield market is where it is is because of this you know, government backstop. But there will be a tremendous number of bankruptcies and restructuring opportunities for, in which we can get involved as this continues to unfold, and, and we're still in the early innings of it although the stock market might suggest otherwise. If you look at the next slide, look at the uh, equity and revenue composition, in just the last few years, the funds international exposure has gone from roughly 20% to 37% where it is today. It's largely been dictated by lower valuation that we find in international markets. And I'm going to circle back to that with some charts in a bit. Portfolio activity during the quarter, as I said, we were very active in Q1 amidst the volatility. Most of the purchases on this slide in Q2, we weren't as active, are corporate restructurings, are corporate actions. There are new issues that have come from restructurings and spinoffs. The only new purchases in the quarter were really a couple of high-yield bonds. And we saw, and again, this shows the breadth that we have, and we were hoping for a lot more of this. We were the high old market stayed down for really at levels that were, were began to find certain businesses, uh, uh, loans attractive just for a couple of weeks. And it wasn't, they, as I said, it wasn't down for long and it wasn't down that much, actually quite surprisingly. But we were able to purchase two issues, you know, one in Carnival, both in the cruise ship industry, one in Carnival Cruises and the second Royal Caribbean Cruises. In our aversion to losing money, having a permanent impairment of capital, the, we didn't. We underwrote Carnival Cruises last year, and we didn't get a comfort level with trying to, you know, get comfortable in buying the equity of the business. We didn't think the business was as good as we otherwise would have hoped, or other investors you know, might believe. The, the returns on capital weren't so good if you really look on a real look-through basis, you know, into the business with the with the massive capital investment in these boats and what it costs to, what it takes to replace them, et cetera. But not a horrible business. It's, a, it's an okay business. But in buying the debt, we bought, for the first time, these companies issued senior secured loans, not just corporate notes, but senior secured loans with first liens on the ships themselves. So the decision we had to make was not whether the cruise industry is a good industry, but whether or not the cruise industry is going to exist in the future. If it existed in some form and even 
a half or a third of these number of boats were to be used in the future, then these loans are going to be very well collateralized. To take Carnival Cruises, for example, when we purchased those loans first, that with that first lien, and the lien was against $27 billion of boat value that's on the books, depreciated boat value, not new build value, but depreciated boat value. So our loan is for $4 billion, and as part of the cost that is the $4 billion loan, if those boats are only worth $25 billion, or $20 billion, $15 billion, or $10 billion, we are still very well protected. By, and so this company, even if there were to be a restructuring, the junior debt holders, the, 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 or the senior debt holders below, who are below us, who don't have a secured first lien, would not let us take the keys to the, to the boats. They would restructure and emerge as a different balance sheet, and we would be, we would be paid off because they don't want to give us the control. Both of those notes, the Carnival Cruise secured loans and the, the Royal Caribbean were purchased at uh, about a 12% yield to maturity. So we're, look, we're hopeful that we'll find more of those types of opportunities as we, as we move forward. The fund, if you turn to look at the return section, we have, we, the, you know, we started, you know, with, with Ned Group. You know, we think about our returns over full market cycles and we've actually beaten the MSC world, MSI world over the full market cycle in our flagship, in our flagship strategy, which this is reflective of. Uh, in a full market cycle, you get the, the puts and takes and the movement within growth and value and, and different sectors and asset classes. You, you kind of get it all. And we've, you know, performed well, you know, over the course of this, you know, full market cycle. Uh, when we started this fund, this account in 2013, the value portion had done well up to that point in time. It's obviously has not done well at the last number of years. Value has clearly been out of favor. Value is underperformance and corporate bond yields trending to zero, zero though, we don't believe are repeatable events over the next 10 years. The growth versus value disparity would have to widen from its near historic spreads and corporate bond yields would have to fall by another few percent. And in the U.S. certainly go solidly into negative category remain there. And that we think is unlikely in our view. If you believe otherwise, if you think that the, that the yields will go down to be negative in of extended period and growth is going to do dwarf value for the next 10 years as it has the last, then our portfolio would not be the best you know, position portfolio for that circumstance as value investors. But as we think of bull market cycles and we think about the six major trends that have existed over the last decade, trends that we have been headwinds for the manner in which we invest, which we believe are, will turn into tailwinds in the future, the six trends are, well, the five major, I'll stick with five trends. One is, is the growth versus value, as I just said. It's also quality versus low vol. I have some charts that we speak to some of these as we go through this. Third is foreign stocks have certainly underperformed U.S. stocks. High yield bonds have offered, you know, a paltry opportunity. And cash has been, used to have a higher yield in the past than it currently has today. And the investment grade portion is a trend for a lot of as you look at one of the performance indicators, you know, for this fund, the investment grade component, and with that decline in interest rates, that has been a major tailwind for that indicator, and that's added a couple of points, you know, to that return, you know, of that indicator. If you look at the uh, performance contribution in the fund, we've had 
and you can see the mix is when he was describing at the beginning, we are value investors. Value to us is investing with a margin of safety. And that is to understand what that business value is, not just the asset value. And we don't, we are not enamored with the idea of, of businesses being uh, valued at, at levels that we think are is somewhat unfathomable to just begin to discount the future in such a way that they, they, they feel it's assured. And Tesla would be a perfect example in, in today's environment for a business that is valued at five times where, say, a Volkswagen's you know, valued and yet only has uh, as a, a percent of, of the cars sold in, in the world, just 4% of those cars today. And Volkswagen owns Porsche and Volkswagen owns Audi as well as Volkswagen and other brands and tremendous truck brands in Mon and Scania and well. And so those valuation histories don't make sense, but be that as it may, that's what investors are clamoring for. And I've lived through this before as it did in 2000, 2000 and working backwards, 1999 and 1998. But we are as value investors, and some might have found it surprising to own companies like Alphabet, Google in our portfolio. We first bought that in 2011 when it was valued at just 11 tons earnings if you back out if you back out the cash and other non-earning assets. And even today, with where the stock is, it's still valued not in excess of the stock market with better growth opportunities in the stock market if, again, you back out the non-earning assets that exist in the portfolio, including Waymo, uh, self-driving car side, or YouTube, which is a non-earning asset, and other things that they own and back out the massive amount, you know, plus billion of cash that they have. And so that's a that is a theme that exists, you know, across our portfolio and other names, including Facebook that you see there. We also you know, continue to own American International Group as an insurance company. For those of us who see me speak in conferences, it is important to understand that American International Group as an insurance company has not been. Look, it, this will be one of the largest. This will be the largest insurable event in history, but it doesn't. It, it, it basically will cause a company like AIG to lose a year's worth of earnings. It doesn't change the business so horribly dramatically. Uh, their investment portfolio has, you know, some exposure to it, which will depend how this unfolds. Will have will be some uh, reassessing there and markdowns, which which uh, will be damaging over the shorter term only. The reality is, this company going into this at a $55 book value, tangible equity. And the stock was trading about the same level. And it made no sense for this company to be trading down at its low at $16. And people were just selling at a pure panic and thinking about what happened in 2007 and 8 when we first got engaged in this company was going to happen again when this company had to be restructured. Well, that was very different at that point. There were tremendous off-balance sheet liabilities uh, in the form of credit default swaps that were misguided and created a tremendous amount of leverage. Well, the stock has you know, almost doubled from its intraday low in March and just back up to 30, still well below its tangible equity or even the invested level of its tangible equity. And that's the kind of disconnects we're seeing you know, in, the, in the market today. Speak going to market commentary for, for just a moment. And you know, Rob, if you turn with flip the line, flipping the script to page 12, you can see our equity exposure moves inversely to the market. When the market is when the market's going up, we tend to be sellers and we tend to find more opportunities when the market's going down. And we lean in and buy when we do see that kind of weakness. Value, flipping to the next page, appears relatively inexpensive given gross outperformance. And our portfolio 
went in the buyer value part of the style box, and thus we should benefit it by your value rebounds. This is interesting. If you look at this page you know, quite closely, you can see this is about you know, as cheap as it's gotten you know, in the past when you can compare you know, growth versus value. And you can see it peaking slightly above that you know, at a point in time you know, back in, 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 uh, in March of 2000, but that's, that's about it you know, over the course of time. So this is about as wide as this has gotten and why we were fairly sanguine about what the future, you know, will bring. Quality and low volatility indices, looking to the next page, have also outperformed for much of the last decade. So the relative valuation of low volume stocks versus the broad market is, has reached a, an all-time high. So the prior page really showed about value versus growth. This just shows, you know, people trying to hide, you know, in what they perceive as being the highest quality businesses and the lower volatility businesses are believed to be by many to be higher quality. Well, we're not a believer that lower vol means higher quality. And there's a lot of businesses that will exhibit volatility in their earning stream, but are growing businesses that are, are good businesses to own over a full market cycle. If one has the wherewithal to you know, psycho psychologically to own these through those cycles. Otherwise, you're forced into owning businesses like, say, for example, the uh, uh, Procter & Gamble. Procter & Gamble, a U.S. branded manufacturer of a host of different household items, including Tide detergent, is viewed as a uh, bastion and a quality business and something that has, offers tremendous protection and support. However, it's important to note that this company over the last eight years has only grown their earnings at about 1%. And yet the company has a 20 some odd times earnings multiple. That's a disconnect and we cannot bring ourselves to buy that, although that company has outperformed over the last couple of years despite very poor earnings growth. So we don't own much of the most expensive low ball stocks. We prefer to own those businesses that we believe over the next, you know, five to seven years will be good performing you know, businesses, and even if there is volatility in the earnings stream. But we do want to ensure, and, and we do, and we have the portfolio is hydrated in a way that we do believe that the companies we have, despite being have a certain cyclicality, will still be good earners well into the future. Marriott Hotels, the global hotel brand, will still be Marriott Hotels, unlike Carnival Cruises, which has massive amounts of of capital invested in boats, Marriott has, doesn't have that doesn't have the capital investment in their hotels. They're a management company. They're more of an asset-like business. Now they still, you know, when business goes to zero, they they don't um, they don't you know you know earn money. Clearly, I was talking to the the owner of a of a number of hotels you know, that the, the property, and, and they actually have Marriott managing some of their hotels, and he was saying, look, we underwrote. It's a 50% occupancy. We didn't underwrite to zero occupancy. The next slide is, is one that, that reflects this disconnect of U.S. versus international in terms of valuation. So we're left in a place where the U.S. is far more expensive than the rest of the world. And you can see why this page describes well, you know, our increase in our international holdings over the past few years as valuations continue, the valuation gap between U.S. and foreign continues to, to widen out. If you look at the next slide, 
defense debt purchase program has reduced the high yield opportunities. Normally in this part of the cycle, our portfolio would have a lot more debt in it, distressed debt and high yield bonds. But the, the, in the default rate you see going up, which is the darker line on the page, the lighter line on the page, you know, it shows you the yields of maturity. What's fascinating, if you look at the past, you look at the it, it, when the default goes up, you see yields are going up. And that's not happening today. And that explains why we've been focused on the high yield bonds we've, that we're spending our time on. We've been focused on the new issue market. And yet the secondary market's been broadly you know, unattractive. This current yield does not account for the expected defaults and recoveries of unsecured high yield bonds. And defaults clearly have started to pick up. But this gets perverted by the involvement of central banks. And a perfect example of this explains the challenges in investing in stocks and bonds today can be seen in, in, the, EC, in, in, uh, in the EU. The ECB has purchased, you know, purchases corporate bonds. And they buy, as long as it fits a certain category and it sort of have certain characteristics, they will be buyers of those bonds, including new issues. So Bernard Arnault, one of the richest men in the world, and the controller and largest holder of Louis Vuitton Wood Embassy, LVMH Holdings, bought Tiffany, a U.S. brand, a luxury brand, and paid $16 billion. And he was going to borrow $9 billion and ended up borrowing $10 billion instead because the rates were so good. And his average yield on this was, was something between, I don't know, 50, 60 basis points. And so well under 1% to go and borrow. And the ECB stepped up and bought some of this debt. And they, bought, they actually issued bonds with a negative yield. So here we are, you know, in the EU, in France, which has, you know, tremendous socialist leanings, where the government is helping the richest man in that country with socialist leanings to purchase a company that is a U.S. luxury brand and pay him to do it by buying bonds that offer a negative yield. It's, it's a complete disconnect. And if you have a negative yield, theoretically, you can pay an infinite price for, for an asset. There is no price that's too high, one can argue. And so we sit in it today, and sit in a world today where that is the, we sit in a world today where that is the norm, but it won't always be the norm. That is unsustainable. How long it goes on is anybody's guess. And central, it's with the, the economic cycles have been perverted by government involvement, which has allowed us to, this market uh, to be supported and extended in a way that heretofore has never been seen in the history of, of public markets. And so as a result, in order to make this happen, if you turn to one last page, this just shows U.S. debt to GDP. We're not in a war. We've had a relatively good economy. And even before this point in time, the pre-COVID, our debt was at a high not seen since World War II. And now we're going to exceed it as a result of COVID. So we, have, we are living in a point in time where this is unprecedented actions have been taken leading up to this, and they've been magnified since. And it's leaving us in a very tenuous place, which explains why we continue to retain the cash that we have, you know, in the portfolio. So those, that's the end of my prepared remarks. And we're going to uh, turn it back to, I think, you, Rob, for now for Q&A.
as you always hit my knee. Hi, Steve. Yes, I'm I'm back online. Thank you very much for that very comprehensive and insightful presentation. We've got a few questions coming through already, so given the slight delay at the start, I think we'll get stuck straight in. So the first one is around your view on gold. Now, given that this is a go anywhere mandate that you're managing, do you consider gold to be part of your investable universe in managing this mandate or what are your views? Gold is gold is a gold is a uh, we view gold as not as an investment, but we view gold as as a currency, and it is a currency that is the only currency that has stood the test of time. So we think that gold is is an important is an important component for people's portfolios. It can be, yet to understand what its value is and how it should be considered. Is, is anybody's guess. Could gold be 3,000? Could it be 1,500? What's the right price of gold? It's one of perception. And that perception is dictated by, you know, how people perceive risk markets we, at a given point in time. And we don't have enough of a view to understand what the right price for gold is, which keeps us from buying gold. That does not mean, nor do I mean to suggest that one shouldn't own gold in their portfolio, but I think if one owns it, they should look at it as a longer term cash investment, uh, or actually I shouldn't say cash and investment in the same sentence, a longer term cash holding. We, we don't believe that we should be paid to hold longer term cash for our investors. And we think that gold being that one decision as a cash, longer term cash substitute is one that people can make on their own without having to pay us any fee. Thank you for that, Steve. A common theme across the, the companies that FPA hold is that they typically have had some negative sentiment toward them. Now, given the range of factors that are currently at play, including the outbreak of a global pandemic, rising social and human rights activism, as evidenced by the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, impending elections in the US, how much of you and the team trimmed expectations of future earnings of the businesses you hold, if at all? And are there any examples we, you could give trimmed, us? We've, we've, trimmed, we've trimmed our expectations on every company virtually not every almost every company that we that we hold and what was surprising to us is that the stock market doesn't seem to have done the same so if you look at where the u.s markets are you know just down a couple you know just down a percent or so a couple percent and the u.s markets are clearly worse off than them being down a couple percent and the economy's down a lot more than that the economies aren't going to be coming our companies aren't going to be coming out of this anytime this deep recession anytime soon so we've trimmed our expectations for numerous companies. Now, those expectations are trimmed, you know, over the next you know, year and two, you know, believing that this is going to be, this is not going to be just a, a V-shaped recovery. It might be a V at the bottom of this economic recovery point and it will peter out in our belief because there's, there's just too much pressure in the system from debt and other things that still have to be unwound for, for us to get to hold the belief that this is back to the races, you know, when we're done. But in our portfolio, if you look at the businesses, some businesses you know are better than others, but in every, but in, but in most every company we've had the revised hour. Now, companies like Comcast and Charter, well, you know, have uh, in the cable side of their businesses, we've you know, Charter's been been, been been actually revised up over the short term because of the they're they're the pipe into the home for for streaming. So Charter is the, you know, Charter and Congress, the two largest cable companies in the United States, bringing the pipe right into the homes so you don't get your Netflix without, with, uh, without the broadband that's brought into the home. So we love them for the, for the reasons of broadband, 
you know, and they, and so we've not, we've not only not trimmed expectations, we've raised expectations, you know, for those companies because the adoption of broadband in the U.S. has accelerated as a result of COVID and the need for stay at home and, and schooling, et cetera, where you need more bandwidth in the home. So that is, is something that actually on the, on the plus side, you know, we've actually taken up, but that's not been the case for the bulk of our portfolio. Even companies like Google, are going to be impacted with their their and Facebook with their tremendous advertising. Now, advertising in the U.S. is expected to be down about the current estimates are around around I'm rounding off now, call it down 14 percent for 2020. Google's still going to be down four percent. They're not going to they're not bucking the trend. They're bucking the they're, they're exceeding the average, but they're still going to get hurt. Just, you know, direction they're down. So that gets revised you know downwards you know as well. With the banks, you know, that we own in the portfolio, you know, we were set up, our portfolio was set up quite conservatively, and we were set up for a, a recession, even a deep recession. We were not set up, our portfolio was not set up for the simultaneous destruction of supply and demand globally. And that, you know, hurt the finances in our portfolio, and those businesses are, you know, have, you know, we've not, you know, most of the positions in the portfolio we've uh, we've increased, you know, into the downturn or exposures and, and finances were not one because we were more concerned about the more permanent impairments that could occur in that in those businesses as a function of the depth and and breadth and length of this uh, of this downturn. But other companies were just going to have you know we're gonna be back to you know business at a point in time, you know, and it'll be business usual. So if you wipe out a year year and a half of earnings, and then it's back to the races uh, at that point in time, because we're not going to not travel to hotels in the future. There will be a vaccine. Without question, there'll be a vaccine. There'll, be, there'll probably be, more, there'll be multiple vaccines, and, and there'll be multiple vaccines that will that may not have the permanent, uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, the scientists in Israel and talking about this, given some of my extracurricular involvement, but there'll probably be a number of vaccines. You might be taking those vaccines, you know, uh, every three months as opposed to something that lasts, you know, like a polio vaccine for, for your lifetime. And so that's going to get the world back to normal, but the world's not going to go back to normal or begin to get on its path until we, until we see that. But once that happens, we're going to, we're going to see these opportunities. There's other companies, you know, in the portfolio, you know, that we own that you still will, or will continue to be, you know, important parts of the, of the, of the global, global economy. Companies like you know semiconductor you know you know you know companies like like Broadcom et cetera you know that we have in the portfolio that the business is slowed but it's not it's not eliminated and they're going to do quite well in the future. Those are a few examples. Happy to dive into okay. more. Great, thank you very much. We have a question coming through on or particularly around value investing. You have covered it in one of the slides in your presentation. It has been a bad decade for value investing. What do financial advisors tell clients who ask us why we should stick with value strategies? So I think this is really around how do you help clients to manage expectations for future returns from the portfolio? How are we positioned to deliver on this mandate going forward? And is this a strategy that clients should stick with? Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean, I think that what's interesting, and I haven't been doing this for 35 years, you know, I've seen multiple cycles and I've seen growth outperform, outperform value and value outperform growth. And, and it's important to, you know, as, as we have actually have, you know, underperformed the market in, the, in this recent, you know, five-year period, but we, over this full market cycle, we're, you know, we're actually, you know, 
committing ourselves admirably over the as value investors over the over over the full ten years because when we think about value, we think about investing with a margin of safety and it allows us to buy companies like Google and Facebook at points in time. So over the last decade, our returns looking on a global ba- you know, compared to the global benchmarks have actually, you know, done done relatively have done relatively well. And that's only because our definition of value in, in trying to make sure we have that margin of safety is goes beyond just buying businesses that have good balance sheets. And so the stocks in our portfolio and the, and the support for what we've done, the stocks in our portfolio have returned, you know, since we started tracking this versus the global indices in 2011, a couple of years before we started the Ed Group account, our stocks in our portfolio, our, you know, our long book is compounded at about three and a half points better than the MSCI world. And a little bit better than the, than the, um, than the S&P. So our stock selection has been very, very good over the longer time frame. And we've been doing this for more than two decades and we didn't just lose our capabilities overnight. What's happened is at points in time in the cycle, rubber bands get stretched. When the internet, I got these same questions in, in 1999 and, and, and I got them starting, starting in 1998. And the rubber bands, the difference was there's better businesses today that are getting higher valuations than there were in 1999 in fairness. But, and the valuations there were really just we're just off the charts silly. And at that point in time, what happens is, is people lose their conviction and, and they want to, they can't stand the fact that they could be doing better doing something else. And so they take their money out of, out of one thing and put it into something else. And that, 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 that literally creates a, the effect of driving performance of that thing that has been outperforming. So we've seen this, we've seen this many different cycles with index funds in the 1980s and the rise of index funds in the 1980s, you know, kept pulling, you know, money into the index funds and they kept buying these big cap stocks and indices and they kept outperforming. And when that return reverses, then, you know, there's selling and it lets something else, you know, step into its place. Same with the internet bubble that we had in 98, you know, in 99 and into 2000. People kept getting sucked in. Well, I don't want, well, it's not that I'm losing money over here and these other kinds of companies, it's quality businesses, but it's, I'm not making as much as I could be making over there in these, in these growth stocks, in these internet and tech stocks. And so let me go buy Cisco and, 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 and AOL and um, other companies of that, of that type, including Lamb Research and other businesses, you know, at a point in time and, and, and Seagate technology and own those. And, that obviously turned out to be you know, the wrong thing, but the fuel to this outperformance is, 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 is not just earnings growth, it's capitulation. And so the very thing that drives you know, success you know, of, of one of, for a period of time for one sector asset class or strategy versus another you know, is, is momentum and it can take it much, you know, you know, people get tired. And they, they get burned out. So we try and think about the way we, we don't suggest that growth is an important part of somebody's portfolio, but we think that as we look across you know, portfolios and, and for investment committees for large multi-billion dollar endowments that I sit on, you know, we have a complement of, of, different, of different investments you know, in the portfolio. We work managers who we, you know, who are growth, we have value, we have people who do distress, we have people who do private equity. And so we have a, a diverse complement of managers recognizing that we do not want everybody to out to perform the same. We want some to be doing better than others at points in time, because at other points in time, they're going to do worse than others. 
And so that is important you know, to us as, as you know, and me, as I think about allocating capital, you know, for others, for these endowments that I'm on. And that's the way I think about it. Does that, um, do you think that's the question or do you want me to, do you want to, uh, you know, add to the question? No, I think that's fine. Thank you very much. We've, we're, we're very close. I'll, 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 I'll add one more point there too. I want yeah. one more point there. It also go back to the points that I made and also was in our last quarter letter about the this, this six major points about what these trends have been and how, you know, the, yeah, so it's what I tried to do in this presentation and in our previous letter, as I try, you know, I tried to show certain things that don't make sense. I tried to you know, show, you know, and just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean they aren't, you know, getting the, you know, a, a large valuation at a point in time. Also, to show you what these trends have been in growth versus value, quality versus low volume, and, and foreign stocks being, you know, being, you know, you know uh, having underperformed, and IO bonds not offering the opportunity, and and, and as well as the trend in, in rates that has 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 really benefited even the most conservative investment grade, you know, manager. How those trends cannot continue ad infinitum. It's just not possible. Trees can't grow to the moon. Thanks, Steve. I'm just mindful that we're running out of time can i squeeze in one quick question more one last question sure okay Please. this one is about tesla elon musk appears to be have to have quite a cult following in the us and perhaps even in global markets investor has posed the comment that no investment discussion is complete without discussing tesla is the market crazy <laughs> you know or is look, it elon musk I want to let, let's. There's a lot of I've been spending a lot of time talking about this, and I've actually wrote it. I don't know if it's going to make it into our shareholder commentary, but I did write about it because it's such a fascinating topic. Because there's the cult of Elon Musk, and he didn't even start Tesla. I don't, most people don't even realize that. And the business has tremendous financial, you know, uh, issues within that that people you know gloss over including major you know, off-balance sheet liabilities in the form of, of lawsuits from their misguided, in my view, uh, purchase of Solar City, uh, including the fact that, that the company from over the last, you know, you know, since over the last decade has lost $6 billion plus and still hasn't really made any money. And the only money they have made in an odd quarter here or there, I don't think is entirely real. And it's only been because when it's there has been because of, of uh, subsidies. For the electric uh, electric subsidies from, from governments giving money uh, to the to the company to go and sell these cars and actually these cars. So, and comparing that to say Google, which at its peak had cumulative losses of 20 million before they turned into their cash the cash machine that they are. The difference between a Google and a Facebook and an Apple, you know, is it's, it's an ecosystem that gets created around it. In some cases, in an Amazon, the winner take all. There's a flywheel effect where where one thing begets something else because it's better and better and better. In the case of Tesla, the only way this valuation makes sense is that is it is, it is actually an ecosystem where, it is go, where it's more of a winner-take-all kind of business, and they're going to gain you know, massive amounts of share, and that Porsche and Mercedes and Audi and BMW and Volkswagen and Toyota and Honda will not have good competing projects, you know, products in the future. So I did a, a uh, just, just last week, just, I, I did a, uh, um, a thought experiment. I said, what if the company produces 400,000 cars today? What if over the next decade they produce 5 million cars? Which, you know, which, which over the course of the decade would be not inconsequential growth from where they are today. So if you look at, if you look at the, 
they had to have 5 million cars, and they had to ask what kind of margin you get. Well, the average car industry margin, if you look at the big players, you know, the big good players, you know, they, uh, you know, is, you know, the best one, the best player off is BMW with an 8% average margin over the last decade. That's 20 years, so that's 20 years. But let's give them 10%. Even if they do that, this, company, this stock will still be trading at a high valuation if they get there. So there's a lot, people are accepting that this is going to succeed at the expense of all these other car manufacturers. And that the only loyalty that people have to the brand is really more, or not simply like in most cases in the studies, is like, like I'd be happy, I'm buying Tesla because they're the ones with the, with the quality electric car now. These other people don't have it. There aren't a lot out there, but eventually there will be. And these industries, these companies are spending billions of dollars in order to, to you know, compete you know, well with Tesla. Tesla's first there, and they've had a great product. And the pricing has reached a, a, a cultish, outlandish level, in my view, which if the best happens over the next five years, you'd get a single-digit rate of return, and there's very good chances that the best does not happen. So okay. we try and dream the dream and try and take the counter-argument. Would you buy one of your kids a Tesla? No, for lots of reasons. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, let me let, let, let me let, let me stop you there. Why would I want to all my kids? That that that's a question for you to cover in your next quarterly newsletter. On that note, thanks very much again, Steve, for joining us today and getting up at Thank the you. crack of dawn in LA. I know you're up at it must have been something like five o'clock this morning to join us this afternoon. Um, very much appreciated, and thank you to our investors for dialing in today and your continued support. Don't forget that the recording of this webinar will be available shortly. Please contact your Ned Group Investments consultant if you would like a copy. Also, just a reminder that tomorrow we will be hearing from the fund managers of our Global Cautious Fund, managed by Perfid, and our Global Diversified Equity Fund, managed by Adevera. Thank you very much to everybody for joining. And again, to you, Steve, have a great evening and stay safe. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.